This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March 2020. So today's panel I'm actually super excited to talk about because death is fascinating. Death is fascinating biologically, death is fascinating philosophically. Um, death is something that a lot of us don't want to talk about, yet we should talk about because it it's something every animate being has in common. Uh, so I'm super excited to hear what our three speakers have to say about death today. Um, each of them is going to speak for uh, 10 to 15 minutes about their angle on death, and then we will open it up and have a general conversation amongst us uh, to try and see what are the what are the overlaps, where where are the avenues for interdisciplinarity here, uh, and an exchange of thought. So. What's going to happen is first we're going to have Hannah Darwin from Art History speak. She's going to talk about this modern death, the medicalization of death in Victorian visual and material culture. Super cool title. And next we're going to have Sidra from the Department of Biomedical and Molecular Sciences speak. She's going to speak about the synopsis of multidisciplinary impacts on birth defects such as neural tube defects. I think I've got a lot to learn in this presentation. And next we're going to have uh, Devin West from Cultural Studies who's going to speak about unmap unmapping heteronormativity, queering death through art practice. And you also have an exhibition on at the moment at um, Union Gallery, right? Yeah. Yes. So if you have some time after lunch to go and check out the um, the exhibition at Union Gallery, which is in Stalfer, Stalfer um, go check that out. Um, and then we're ready to go. All right. Over to you. Okay. Everyone's monitors are... Good to go. I'm just going to oh. turn this so that we can see you. All good? Perfect. <clears throat> okay, so. Uh, in 2017, Public Health England released a statistic which said that about 230,000 people, roughly around 46% of all deaths, happened within hospitals in the country. So despite the fact that nearly 50% of all deaths are happening within hospital, scholarly research hasn't addressed this interaction between death and medicine. If this statistic was released about 200 years ago, it would have been very different. So on one hand, this is largely because hospitals were very different places. And on the other, it's because families practiced a ritual called funeral week. And in this week, it would take place immediately after death, and families would wash, dress, and lay out the body. And so after, during this week, families were expected to live with their dead. So often, the body would lay in an, a spare bedroom, and if a bedroom wasn't available, they would be laid out on the kitchen table. So they would be on the kitchen table for a number of days, and then a local undertaker would come and then collect the body afterwards. So the novelist Julian Barnes, in his 2008 memoir called Nothing to be Frightened of, expresses his discomfort with the lack of involvement we have with our dead ones, dead loved ones. And then he writes, quote, <clears throat> nowadays we make death as invisible as possible and part of the process. From doctor to hospital to undertaker to crematorium in which professionals and bureaucrats tell us what to do, up to the point where we are left to ourselves, survivors standing with a glass in our hands, amateurs learning how to mourn. 
So we certainly identify with the feeling of being isolated at the moment of death, and particularly at the end of our uh, loved ones' lives. Um, but we, but were we given this opportunity to lay out, to wash the body, to dress the body, it's likely that most of us would still choose to keep this distance and stay out, uh, stay unimplicated. And this is largely because it's so foreign to us in contemporary Euro-American society. Um, and considering how we've been conditioned, this idea of interacting and really coming into contact with the dead very closely is still deeply uncomfortable. So it's, as Julian Barnes says, it really stifles our ability to mourn and grieve, and this is why he calls us amateurs. So my project is situated at the intersection of art history, the history of medicine, and the medical humanities. So it's really an interdisciplinary project. And what I'm really looking at is this early medicalization of death, particularly in Victorian culture. And my focus is on this perimortem experience and mourning. And what I'm looking at is how this experience altered the visual and the material cultures of Victorian Britain. My focus is the moment when modern medicine and its institutions began to infiltrate the lives and deaths of Victorian Britons. So the time period I'm looking at is about 1875 to about the very early 20th century. So today, as we've discussed, Euro-American culture has tended to treat death with this pervasive silence, and medicine for the most part, has tended to treat death as outside the purview of science. And today, so what my goal is with this panel was to bring together emerging scholars to talk openly about death, but also the forms of grief which bind our work together. So Sidra, Devin, and I are all in various stages of our PhD. So our goal today is really to share our works in progress and where we are in the stages of our research. So what I'm going to do today is go through some of the images and visual culture that I'm using, as well as the material culture, and then talk about my goals for the project and also what my next steps are. So I'd like to begin by thinking and talking about this image uh, by Luke Fields, which is entitled The Doctor. Um, it's from 1891, and here we see that a child is on this makeshift bed with two chairs which have been put together, and the child is on the precipice of death. We, he, we see that um, the child is being watched closely over uh, by a physician, and here the doctor is prominently lit, and he is at the center of the scene. So normally we would associate Christian symbols such as crosses and Bibles, which would be around, but here we notice that these Christian symbols have been omitted. Then when we look at earlier examples, for example, uh, this one from 1879, comes from the continent, and it's by Pistoni. We see a woman who is on her, on her sick bed, and she is being watched over by a doctor as well. We see that he's at the center of the scene, and he's taking her pulse. And he is also or she is surrounded by two women uh, who is attending her, and they're likely family members who are nursing her back to health. Behind her, we see this crucifix, which is just, um, just above our heads. And on the right-hand side, we see that she's receiving a blessing from uh, Madonna del Parto. 
When we look at even earlier examples, like this one, for example, this is a mezzotint from 18th century Britain, we see that there are the dying figures are surrounded by family members who are weeping just here in the background, and on the right, they have their hands clasped in prayer. So what is really significant here in this painting by Fields is that what is highlighted is this relationship between the doctor and the patients. On the foreground, we see scraps of paper, which are uh, likely filled prescriptions, which litter the floor. On the left-hand side, rather prominently, we also see a highlighted medicine bottle. And then on the right side, what we see is a mortar and pestle. And these are traditionally humble apothecary's tools, which were used before the scientific era of medicine. And these are cast in shadow. So what Fields is alluding to in this painting is this increasing professionalization of the physician during 19th century Britain. And he's also using this work to signal the doctor's new role in accompanying an individual from cradle to grave. So, of course, the 19th century was unprecedented in terms of morbidity and mortality, and this really resulted in a booming charnel industry. And with this booming charnel industry came prescriptive mourning rituals. And these rituals were meant to affirm uh, loss and also support mourners. So an example of this is, uh, is funeral week. And so my project really focuses on Funeral Week, which provided a socially structured roadmap for grief. And it allowed mourners to come to grips with loss through direct contact with the body. So what's interesting is, as, is that as medicine developed, many began to spend their final illnesses in hospitals. And many, like the child in Fields' painting, um, also expired under the supervision of medical personnel. So these developments resulted in hospital regulations. And these developments also began to limit the access to the dying. And what ends up happening is medical staff begin to take over after death. So when one died, rather than the family washing and dressing the body, nurses and physicians would then step in and perform those rituals. So my project argues that this transition eroded the importance of funeral week, and it also displaced the family from socially structured mourning rituals. So within my project, um, I'm also looking at pamphlets as well as guides for nurses, and these were generally written to provide guidance on the quorum on the, at the patient's bedside. It also provided practical advice on how to prepare the body for burial. Again, they were stepping in for the family. Um, and the, this advice was really how to do this with gentleness and affection. And I also will be looking at other pamphlets written by physicians for other physicians. And these really deal with death and mourning within a medical setting. I'll also be looking at articles, contemporary journal articles from The Lancet and the British Medical Journal as well. And these had critiques often and also uh, advice on how to deal with death, again, in this context. 
And then lastly, I'll be looking at oral history tapes as well as diaries and journals, which um, were from allied health professionals like nurses. And this is largely because they would have these interactions with death and also with family members, and then they would record their thoughts and their feelings in these journals um, throughout their medical education. And of course, because of the lack of time, I won't be including them, uh, showing them to you in this uh, presentation. So what are the aims of this project? So recently, there's been a lot of increased criticism of our relationship with modern medicine. Um, and this is largely driven by this desire for agency over our own bodies, particularly in death. So my goal is to use medical humanities and the histories of medicine to engage with physicians and nurses as well as other allied health professionals. And it's really to use art history to provide a view of community-centered death practices from our system's path, past in order to promote a more supportive and inclusive experience around death. So in large part, this project is aimed at healthcare workers who deal with unexpected deaths. So we're talking about uh, internal medicine physicians, uh, doctors who practice rural and remote medicine, uh, internal medicine, uh, or sorry, family medicine, as well as ER physicians. So I believe that an added awareness of communal ways of mourning would help healthcare workers better relate to patients and their families during these traumatic but very universal events. So in large part, the wider goal of this project is to provide a historical community-based approach to dying in the medical system, and one which emphasizes dignity, intimacy, and familiarity around the moment of death and how the body is returned to dust. So what are my next steps? The first thing is to examine the development of hospitals in Britain in conjunction with the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834. And this is largely because the poor law is fundamental to the development of medical institutions in Britain. The second is to look at the role of the Anatomy Act in 1832 in 19th century medical education and training. And this is, of course, because the 19th century is known for the secret trade uh, in human bodies. And the Anatomy Act really was uh, an attempt to stem this trade by allowing anatomist surgeons the right to dissect uh, unclean bodies of the poor that were located in these workhouses, um, which resulted from the Poor Law Amendment Act. And the third thing would really be to examine the professionalization and medicine uh, of, of medicine and nursing a little bit more deeply. And this is because uh, professionalization is key to understanding the notion of clinical objectivity, which develops in the 19th century and which we continue to see today. My name is Sitra, and I am a PhD candidate in Department of Biomedical Sciences, uh, Faculty of Health Sciences. So welcome to our presentation. Who wants to talk about death? But there are people here who can listen and talk about death. It's really hard to think of an end. So my perspective today about death is from an angle of a woman who is pregnant with a 
baby who has a birth defect and that baby is going to die right that baby has no span of life either that baby is going to be dead within the womb or out of the womb but that woman who is the mom or the pregnant lady has to bear that pain that suffering and experiencing the death of a living being so it's quite a different angle or perspective to talk about life and death and the basis of this presentation is the this publication this publication was written in 2017 2018 by myself and it raised the angle of uh, mental health issues that are associated when in women who are pregnant with a baby having birth defect in that era of 2017 preceding that was the year 2015 2016 and in 2015 2016 there was an epidemic of zika virus and in zika virus the uh, babies were having the birth defect of um, abnormal development of head but the problem was that when you are pregnant and you have that baby there can be different scenarios either the pregnancy will be terminated or the baby will be born and uh, as we i further talk about it so the story of pregnancy starts with uh, conception of a sperm and an ovum and this conception results in this structure that's the very early stage of a baby and that's about 4 to 6 weeks of pregnancy so you are 4 to 6 weeks of pregnancy in and you have this structure and this structure has a groove and a tube in it now this structure that's the embryo goes towards developing a full baby and that baby is born and delivered to a mother and if everything goes well the mother and baby both are happy here comes my research so i research in this stage of development of neural tube defects this tube is known as neural tube and when this does not close properly it results in a neural tube defect and that neural tube defect results in the further head anomalies so if you if this plays will this play no oh. okay so and uh, this is the experimental data where you see back of this is back of the head and this v shaped is the closure area of this tube and if this does not happen it will result in different types of head defects in the baby that are the birth defects 
so either the skull is not formed or the head is not with the back is not formed or there is an anomaly only on the back or the head is abnormal or there is a growth at the back of the head and these are all the conditions in which there is failed neural tube closure but how why it happens it happens either because of exposure to some drugs during pregnancy like um, cannabis that we are using these days a lot and valproic acid and very many <clears throat> chemotherapeutic drugs it can be genetic passed from one generation to next but it was rarely seen in response to uh, a stimulant like zika virus so what happened in the cases of zika virus that the women who entered in the pregnancy had the zika virus infection they started having the babies who had the head abnormalities and these head abnormalities were leading to advice of being terminated so either the pregnancy needs to be uh, terminated or continued but what happens is in the um, brazil they did not allow due to their ethical local and religious laws the termination of pregnancy they wanted them to deliver those abnormal babies right and those abnormal babies they had to raise till they die after birth right now that led to con um, concern in uh, with the background of my own study that i wrote that publication this is my poster that i presented yesterday uh, that i wrote the publication that that those conditions the abnormal pregnancies miscarriage and the social stigma are leading to conditions that are stress related in those women who are experiencing imminent death but the baby is not dying the baby has to die but it is alive now um i work with the valproic acid induced mouse model to study how the neural tube defects developed in that epidemic in response to zika virus now the story moves on with the zika virus in either one direction or the other in one direction the pregnancy is terminated by nature that is known as the miscarriage and it, it is like it goes all the way around but in other case it has uh, when in the cases of zika virus the baby was asked to be born and raised for some time by the family by the mother now imagine you 
have a woman who is pregnant, who has given birth a baby who looks like a monster, and that baby is going to die. And you have to imagine that you take that baby home, you see that baby all day long, you hear the stigma that you gave birth to this baby. This is your fault from the friends, family, society, and health professionals although it is no one's fault, right? And that baby, everyone is just waiting that baby to die. Then how we define the death? Is it an end? Is it the end of a beginning? It is expression of pain. It is expression of pain with the loss. But this is just a tip of iceberg. This is just the tip of iceberg. Below there is an invisible grief and that invisible grief is associated with mental health issues. And that invisible grief is not recognized by anyone. That is related to death and even sometimes it is not felt by the woman itself. So here are some scripts from the uh, people who are experiencing the pain of miscarriage and death. Take a moment to have a look. So what happens is that the motherhood of those women is skeptical in the view of people surrounding them. They are thinking that this is the fault again of the woman itself, although it is not. So there was a study done um, over 6,000 women who had the miscarriage. And they found in that study that that grief was in such a closed box that they could not discuss their miscarriage even with their best friend, even their partner, and sometimes not even with themselves. And that sharing of bad news is horrible with everyone, even with the health professionals. So. Here is the story of a woman who was, was pregnant and suffered miscarriage in the third to fourth month of pregnancy. So the points to be noted in this script are the, 
that I am emotionally not the same person anymore. And I have, I have no one <clears throat> I feel I can talk to. So these are the feelings and the anxiety, depression, and grief that goes on for the rest of life of these women. In view of um, these feelings, these contacts, this data, I um, wrote a publication that pregnancy with Zika virus should be labeled and classified with the conditions that are diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder. So what happens in the post-traumatic stress disorder that health professionals diagnose post-PTSD with certain criteria, and those criteria are related to the grief that goes on and how to cope with that grief. So this is the part of my publication in which I have said that it is proposed to consider the pregnancy complicated with Zika virus infection as a prospective condition leading to PTSD. Because this condition is underdiagnosed and also undermanaged. It is just the case with the health professionals who need to take a look into it. And there are the risks that patients develop PTSD later on. The take home message from my presentation is that we need to acknowledge and help. It is just not being acknowledged that there is an invisible grief and that should be treated. Yes, it is death. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Last but not least, technical glitch there. What did you press? You just move the mouse the out of the right way. Oh. <laughs> it's all about the mouse. It's always the mouse. 
<clears throat> uh, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see a diehard crowd. <laughs> um, much different to art history and very much science, which is a, a great combination. I'll bring you into some very contemporary art, as in right this moment. Um, and these are all my pieces, so I'm going to welcome you to a slideshow of my artistic processes and installation art pieces while I discuss these visuals in the context of queer kinship and the inevitable queer cultural grief haunting these pieces of work. Um, as, a as a conceptual installation artist, my art practice intimately interrogates identity politics. As my art practice evolved, I understood my continuous use of working with cow bone, which is what you see in this image, and um, cow bone and teeth as a way uh, of weaving my rural, queer, gender fluid identity into art by claiming and reclaiming queer kinship and ancestry. As my PhD work unfolds right now, I work on defining and separating the structures of heteronormativity which have proven to effectively suppress a gender fluid queer voice. Thriving cultural, cu culturally embedded heteronormativity uh, represents an ongoing invisible death of queer kinship, queer ancestry, queer history, and queer culture. I use art as an archive and artifact of gender fluid and queer cultures. So now what I'm going to do is just go through some of the, the uh, slides and explain the relationship with queer death and invisible grief. Um, the next couple slides here, starting with this one, is an exhibition. It was my first solo exhibition and it was called Unsettling the Homestead. And it was a series of four barn windows that I reclaimed and used as kind of um, window boxes to explain my own queer, gender fluid, rural identity uh, from childhood to the point of starting my master's degree, nicely tucked into four window boxes. Um, my master's research was on female masculinity and <clears throat> I had four research participants who uh, gave me their experiences of being not necessarily trans, but they didn't necessarily feel male or female in their, in their biological body or in their gender expression. And uh, early on in my research, I discovered that we were talking about a lot of things that didn't have uh, a specific language to define. And in that kind of nebulous space, I realized that if I'm asking these research participants to be vulnerable about their gender identity, that maybe I should try artistically representing my own to see how that goes before I request anyone else to uh, participate. So Unsettling the Homestead was my own experience. And it was the first place I started working with bone. This is a vertebrate I found on the beach and that I was really drawn to. So I used it and a hockey puck to represent my own rural uh, childhood identity from northern Saskatchewan. Um, this exhibition was my master's degree exhibition that I did as a part of my thesis. Um, so the, the four research participants that uh, agreed to work with me uh, all had their own way of working with me and I took 
the information they gave me and I distilled it down into a, an exhibition as a way of disseminating the knowledge that came from those research participants to a broader public audience because it was one of the reasons I advocated having an art exhibition as part of my thesis was that representing a marginalized group of people to avoid it seeming as exploitive as it seemed to me as a marginalized person, I wanted to create a public space for those identities to be talked about and for those research participants to be represented in a way that was accessible to them, not just in a dry academic way that they weren't going to, to, to be able to access in the future. I think that's where the uh, research exploitation comes in is if I were to ask these people to give me this information and then use it for my own research and then not make it accessible to them, I found that very problematic. So that was my reason for, um, w one of my main reasons for wanting to produce an exhibition, a public exhibition with the research findings. And one of the main research findings that I found, I was looking for threads of resilience for people who are gender fluid and don't necessarily identify in that binary of male or female, or necessarily trans, because sometimes trans identity gets uh, thrown into that binary rather than living outside of that binary. And, and my research participants rejected all three of those labels. And the only com real common strong thread of resilience I found in my research amongst those research participants was that they all described a, a really long, like a years long pro identity process of disembodying their, themselves from their bodies. Um, like, so they rejected their bodies, they didn't feel like they were uh, represented by their bodies in specific. Two of them spent at, at least 10 years identifying as transgendered and then eventually rejected that identity as well because it didn't quite fit for them because they felt like being trans just put them on the other side of the binary at, at the period of time they were talking about, which was the 1990s. Um, we've expanded in our gender expression significantly since then, but for them, they're talking about a specific period of time. And then uh, eventually coming back to re-embody themselves and, and re-identify as something that they were more comfortable with. So I used a series of bird cages. Um, I made five bird cages, that's what you can see here, suspended. Um, and I used a cow skeleton and a full, a complete skeleton and I broke it into five sections and used each section in a bird cage to represent that disembodiment and then re-embodiment. So that's what you're seeing here. I suspended all the cages. I don't have a great picture of it for you to see, but I suspended all the cages with logging chain and uh, a logging hook to represent the, the structures of society that suspend us all, really. I have taken Virgil defect as the iconic bird defect because it's almost certain that the babies with neurotrope defects die, whether they die in utero or they die after birth. But all the cases of miscarriages have this common thing of an invisible grief, that invisible grief of imminent death that is not even sometimes being recognized by the person who is experiencing that. 
between visible trees and that leads and literally covers the rest of life of that woman and it shapes the landscape of mental health of that woman and her interaction with the society with her professionals with friends and family and that needs to be recognized because no one recognizes it no one talks about it and uh, mo most important the health professionals do not realize and accept that patient as a different patient they realize it as a patient who has come to them for the treatment of sore throat giving the medicine will heal but this is not the case those women who have such an experience should be dealt and treated in a social structure in a health structure that is supportive and that has different components of counseling realizing and follow up which is not there so how do you see some of the overlaps between so i think death is quite clear in yours because there's a tension between death and life yeah right and even with with all of yours it's about what is allowed versus what is not allowed and how things become differently right yeah um it was a great question to start us off thank you any additional questions between you guys or should we can we are you keen to have a conversation i had a question for yeah. anna that's oh. just i just wanted you to maybe explain to us a little more about the the poor act and how that had an effect mm. on how death was treated with the introduction of yeah. medicalization because i find that a really fascinating absolutely period so I will tell you that I'm currently in the middle of my field. So I, this may, we may fall into a hole. So I'll try to <laughs> well, I know reel nothing, myself back. So anything will be good. <laughs> so the great Elizabeth, uh, so this actually tracks all the way back to the 16th century. And just to kind of make it short, it was um, the initial poor law was meant to um, stay within uh, smaller communities in the 16th century. So this kind of poor law um, made, um, uh, churches responsible for their poor, but this poor law was enact uh, er, was enacted until the 19th century. Okay. So until about 1834, when this new poor law came into action, it was the first time that the government essentially um, made healthcare. Um, available for people who were poorer but the only thing was that you had to prove that you were it was called a test of lesser eligibility and it mean it meant that you had to prove that you were destitute in order to qualify for this care so this is the beginning of hospital institutions in England so when I say that hospitals were very different places it truly was that you would go into there and you would expect that you would pass away there mm -hmm. and so you would be forced to give up everything that you owned and then you would if you were married and you had children and you all went into the system you would all be separated wow mm -hmm. and so the the trouble is that when you pass away in an institution like that um, and you have the anatomy act in partnership with that if a family member doesn't claim your body and to claim your body it means that you have to be able to afford to pay for a funeral then 
you immediately go, you are the right, your body becomes the right of the anatomy dissectors. And so for 19th century British uh, individuals, there was a lot of obviously stigma associated with being dissected. And this is largely because dissection was originally a, um, a punishment for murderers. So murderers would be hung and then as a further humiliation, you wouldn't be granted a proper burial and then you would be dissected. So the poor law really um, comes into contact with the Anatomy Act very closely and really um, has this thread that, that kind of courses through the entirety of the 19th century because this is a very real and very true fear for a lot of uh, people who just, you know, were, were poor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, that's a very long one. No, that's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I have no proof, but I can... You know, I see this, like direct, uh, like how that's had a direct relationship to our current medical system, and and how, particularly how we deal with old people. Absolutely, yeah. and I think you know um, when we talk about the clinical objectivity that develops during that period. It is in many ways necessary because when you're having that volume of people pass away within these institutions, it's not that you have to turn a blind eye, but um, it, it sort of becomes the reality. And I think this clinical objectivity really extends to kind of what we're seeing today in, in death. You know, it's something that we'd rather not discuss. It's ra something we'd rather not be a part of. And in fact, when you discuss death fairly openly, it becomes impolite. Mm -hmm. So what was really interesting for me, so I'm actually doing research in a similar period, okay. but uh, I'm focusing on animals <laughs> and how animals came to disappear from urban spaces. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the reasons for why slaughterhouses disappeared from urban London was death, right? People didn't, they, they started to say, oh, blood. And, and when you mentioned that bodies, people's bodies were kept on people's kitchen tables mm -hmm. for a long time, I was like, well, there are still bodies on kitchen tables today, they're just no longer human bodies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I started to think, and this became a thread for me throughout all three of your presentations, were animals. Mm -hmm. Animals were in some way represented in, in death in one way or another, because I think the medicalization of people and, the, and animals are deeply intertwined. Mm -hmm. So even if you look at like Foucault's Panopticon was actually inspired by mm -hmm. Victorian menageries. Mm -hmm. um, prison systems were inspired by, by animal um, agriculture. Um, so th those kinds of overlaps as, as humans became more systematically dealt with, so were animals. The Zika virus, obviously mosquitoes are at the center of this, this story as well. And, and your use of cowbone throughout um, speaking about, I think, death of queer identity, but at the same time, the use of animal bone is a, is a different kind of death that's being represented there as well. So I, I, did any of you pick up on that at all in, in, in your thinking about death, how animals were involved at all? And this is me, like, totally, <laughs> sorry, this is my, like, interest, um, but it's, 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 it's a curious thing that it's throughout all three of yours. You know, to be honest, I didn't. No, um, I didn't either. But I, I was really struck by how, uh, with Devin, with the way that your work uh, relied on these bones, and it was just very, very evocative for me, particularly to see how you've arranged this, and it, it was just really powerful. But I hadn't really considered um, this idea of animals that that is actually through all three of our presentations. Mm -hmm. But in our research, as we work with 
animal models and the mouse model. So there is a, a tendency of cannibalism. When a, a mouse gives birth to an abnormal baby, and uh, if we are not researching that, we are not collecting the data for that abnormal pregnancy or the delivery, that mouse is going to eat that abnormal baby. That's cannibalism. So the abnormal pregnancy is, has the tendency to be wiped away. That's the condition the same happens with pregnancy in women, in human beings. That because that pregnancy is kind of neglected, wiped away, no one realizes the underlying mental health condition that is uh, the result of that pregnancy, basically. So actually, that death is everywhere, but that death is kind of sweeped away from the life of those women and it is not addressed, it is not treated, and whenever you talk to those women in their 50s and 60s, they will definitely remember that time period of pregnancy, that feeling of loss, and they will keep on refreshing that memory. They, won't, they don't want to. So the memory doesn't die. They don't want it to die because that's the part of their motherhood. Mm. Josh? Oh, sorry. Did sorry, you have more to say? No, yeah, I just want to make sure that I... Sorry, go on. Yeah, it's okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I actually had a question just before this thought or thread dies. Um, dies. Um, <laughs> Devin, um, I would like to hear more about, um, uh, as Claudia sort of mentioned, the... Uh, what I would assume to be non-accidental and very explicit use of cow bones and this institutionalized death to, you know, represent in some ways um, queer death that is heteronormatively inst institutionalized, uh, if that is the right way to put it. But that's why I, I'd just like to hear more on your on, thoughts on that. On which particular element? O on the relationship between cow bones and cows potentially as institutionalized death and then? Oh, that's a great question. Um, when, I was when I first decided to use bones in my master's exhibition, I initially wanted to use the biggest skull I could think of, which was a bison, and I did get a bison skull from a bison farmer. And then I thought about um, the uh, cultural implications of that and what the cultural symbolism of a bison skull would be and if I were to do anything to it artistically would that de desecrate it culturally and I didn't want to deal with how loaded that was so then I moved to the next best thing which was a cow mm -hmm. skull and then I had access to a full skeleton so uh, I was really happy to be able to use a complete intact skeleton and um, it was really hard to find a cow skeleton that didn't have a bullet hole in its mm -hmm. skull because most farmers who butcher cows shoot them. So that was a whole different kind of symbolism. So I had to do a lot of negotiation with what kind of symbolism I wanted to portray. 
and um, it was the institutionalization of cows, and I didn't think of it as institutionalization, but I was thinking about just my history of growing up on a cattle farm and, and how they're fen fenced in and, con and contained, and how um, most people have this assumption that cows aren't very smart, and I don't think that's true. Like, like us growing up exhibiting or uh, watching their behavior and having relationships with particular cows, like like having them throughout years of my childhood, um, <clears throat> I thought more about the the rural relationship and the institutionalization of cows. So that's interesting, especially since I put them in bird cages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt as though, I mean, I think we're both quite, because we're both animal studies scholars, so I think maybe we're, we're sensitive to it in a way that, for us, we're looking at death in a, in a way that's possibly different, but I, I, like I found animal death throughout a lot of your presence, the fish hook, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the fish nets, the, the bones, um, and, and I thought that they were just all, all three of your presentations really, because a lot of that institutionalization of animals, but also I think problematization of particular Beings across across species across time happened within this this period that you're talking about is a really important period yeah. um, in in England in terms of determining what is allowed and not allowed and where. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I really enjoyed this tremendous mm -hmm. work of all three of you. Just a little side note to that, like just speaking. So I had my master's exhibition at the University of Saskatchewan, and Saskatchewan is you know just known to be rural. And there was a particular response to having bones in an art gallery. Like it was like no big deal. This is great, wonderful. Like everyone seemed to appreciate it. And then I have, when I had my first exhibition here, the immediate response is like to portrait a heteronormativity, like the four frames with the bones in it. Um, the response most often was, "This is really morbid." I got the word morbid a lot. It's like, wow, that's a whole different context and a whole different response. This speaks to some of Yes, and I, I think that is largely because we are so removed from this process of death and dying. You know, mm -hmm. it, it makes us truly uncomfortable in, in a way that, um, and that's part of the reason why I'm curious to, to trace this thread back from how we are now to what we came from. Um, because I think this uh, this direct contact with the body is, is really important in the way that we process grief and mourning. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we see something like bones in an art gallery, it it makes us, I don't know, gives us the willies for because of this just complete detachment. Yeah, you know? it makes us uncomfortable, yeah. which for me is the whole point. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. in like very different ways, but was interesting. Um, the implications of like customs and stereotypes, I think, in how people are able to live and express themselves. Um, playing out in death was very interesting, like how women are perceived or the stereotypes of, of miscarrying, how that's put back on them, or or how um, your the photo you showed near the end of like this in like gender reveals and like this this gendering pre-death, like their life will be through this narrative. Like hadn't I hadn't thought of in those ways, but um, even in like, I've been to a lot of funerals this month, and or like February, and uh, it's interesting how 
just rigid it is. It's very organized. Like they walk you, the, the families, like you don't have to think. They just, it's so, every day they have back to back to back, mm -hmm. right? So you just, you come, you do your time of, with the body and then after the burial, like they have the next family. Like it's it's like a production line of, of a sort. And it's interesting how capitalism plays in with death. And I think that's something that I would be interested in both like how you think like marketing, like Zika virus, I know there was a lot of criticism of, of um, access to medicine in a lot of instances, could it have been prevented? Like those narratives, um, how does the state and its ability to access medicine play in and, and the evolution of medicine? Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because you're all in such different time periods and looking at such different um, kind of cultures and backgrounds, but yeah. I don't know. Lots of lots of thought. <laughs> I mean, follow. your comment is so interesting, and I think, you know, when you talk about attending funerals, I mean, it is very much like rigid. Like you stand here, you go here, you go here, then you leave, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think um, when you're talking about like capitalism, particularly in the 19th century, this is when. Um, the boom is seen with undertakers in particular. And in fact, they capitalize on death. And the Victorians were known for um, the you know, emulation of, uh, of higher classes. So the poor would save their pennies just so that they could socially emulate people who were higher up in hopes that that would also move them um, you know, socially, which of course, is not a great idea. Um, but it, it is very, it has been, um, very much like uh, a, a capitalist endeavor. And even today, um, when I say, and when I use that Julian Barnes quote saying that like, um, it, it's something that's become very bureaucratic. And uh, the, reasons, the reason why we have lost touch with um, process of death is largely because these industries are really heavy lobby, heavily lobbied and heavily regulated both by the government and by the professions, by the undertaking professions in particular. And yeah, uh, for the Zika virus in those time periods, the women who really wanted to have the uh, termination of pregnancy because they did not uh, want the baby to be born and suffer, they had to move out of the boundaries of Brazil to get that abortion. They could not get that miscarriage uh, on their own in their home country. That was the strict law that led to the a surge of 5,000 birth of those 5,000 abnormal babies. And that was such a horrible experience for the society because that was a burden on everyone, on society, on economics of the Brazil, on health sector, on the women who were taking care of those babies and on, the, on men who were earning hands for those families. Is the Zika virus gone now? Is it, is it, because it was a problem with mosquitoes, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and is it, because there was some like breeding program or something that they were trying to? So they have like covered us with prevention, but there is no treatment. Mm. Mm. They have covered it. It is, it has gone, like it is not gone. It is low okay. with their screening methods, with their preventive methods. So it is not that widespread. And the women who are pregnant, they are screened for Zika virus if they are positive or negative before they plan for pregnancy. Therefore, it, it, that epidemic of microcephalic babies is low now. Mm -hmm. But the situation on the other hand 
with the, the, with the disease itself is still there. So that's why we, we researchers, biomedical researchers, actually want to know that how did actually Zika virus caused that neural tube defect? Because it is really uh, hard to perceive that a virus just comes and in every pregnancy in the start, it crosses the placenta and infects the baby, cause the disease. It, it is really hard because the neural tube defect is the defect that happens in very early stages of pregnancy. So there must be something very different with the neural tube defect caused by Zika virus and the, uh, I particularly studied the molecular mechanisms that which are the genes that are responsible for causing the neural tube defect and cells to die and prevent the closure of the neural tube itself. If someone has been tested positive for Zika virus and they lose their baby in this process of post-death or they are able to abort it safely, are they able to ever have children, or is this like a permanent issue that they will forever just have the virus in them? Like, have you, have you researched? Very good question. Yeah. So what happens is that um, in the pregnancy with the Zika virus, there are three options. Is there a miscarriage, there is termination, and there is a birth. And after that, in the next pregnancy, if the woman is still positive for the Zika virus, there are chances of having that pregnancy with birth defect. Therefore, that was the cause of anxiety and depression in those women because they were afraid of getting pregnant again. They could get pregnant again, but they were afraid of getting pregnant again because they were stigmatized of giving birth or having miscarriage. There is a chance of getting pregnant again, but there is an equally important chance of having the miscarriage or birth defect if you are still positive. And it is it goes bi-directional if you're positive with the, um, uh, if your partner is positive and or mother is positive. So the Zika virus is also affecting the sperm and the genes in the sperm as well. Yeah, I, um, something that came up for me initially in, uh, well, through all of the talks was um, the emotions that are caught up in death. Um, sorry, my stomach is rumbling. Um, so, uh, particularly the, um, the experience of the mother who lost their child um, that you showed us and how she describes herself as feeling empty, right? Um, very powerful, and so this is a question, I guess, for every like the three of you and anyone else. But what is it about our specific, maybe cultural understandings of death that make it so emotional? Right? And I hope this isn't like a. This is a question that I'm genuinely wondering. Not like mm -hmm. uh, you know, it doesn't seem obvious to me that it should be so uh, that we should be left so bereft. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. 
I mean, I hope like that comes no, up. No, no, no. <laughs> I, you know, I part of the reason that I am doing undertaking this research is because so I'm Filipino. Um, and the way that we deal with death in my culture is very, very different, you know. So um, it is something that even unexpected deaths are are, um, are grieved in different ways. So for us, we as children, and this will sound very strange to like a North American eye, is that we would spend time in the funeral homes, we would sleep there, we would eat there, and um, once someone was buried, it would be like every year on the 1st of November, sort of like the Mexican tradition. It's like you would go there and then you would, you know, um, have a picnic and, and be amongst your grandfather, your uncle, all these things. Um, and I sometimes feel that here in North America, because we don't have this openness and discussion, I think it leaves us a little bit more bereft um, because we are experiencing grief, but we often do it silently and alone. Mm -hmm. My take on that is, um, I think in our westernized white culture, mm -hmm. that our relationship with death has been severed by not talking about it. So when you hear about other cultures, they still have a relationship with the people who have died, is, is how I interpret mm -hmm. like exactly what you just said. It's like, you're still acknowledging that relationship and that that relationship may have changed, but it didn't, mm -hmm. it didn't, it didn't end with death. Mm -hmm. And in our, in our Western culture, I feel like things end with death, and and I think that's where things go sideways. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, it just it, doesn't. Exactly, and I think that's what I was thinking I was getting at towards, mm -hmm. right? That uh, broadly speaking, in the West, the figures of death become this like melancholy, like you know, uh, missing or they're absent. Whereas, I mean. Yeah, and it's just it, not, it, it goes it's on. This relationship so goes on. Goes on yeah. Yeah. So. Like, and for me, growing up on a farm and also growing up on a trap line, so death is very much embedded in my everyday experience mm -hmm. in a very practical mm -hmm. way. So I don't feel like I would be more more comfortable mm -hmm. doing your rituals than doing any kind of white Christianized rituals that are cut off. It's interesting that you brought up Christianity there, because I can't help but wonder how through, again, like, like animals, but I also think religion is in, in, in part throughout, you know, the medicalization, mm. increasing medicalization goes hand in hand with increasing secularization, I guess, to some extent, um, and, and not women not speaking about, I mean, the idea of motherhood and Christianity are so deeply entwined um, that it's 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 hard to unpack you know throughout all of these it's it's, it's interesting that you brought up religion there um, how do you uh, as, a, as a final question before we, we all head down to have a cup of coffee um, when you speak about queer death so this for me is something I was thinking throughout your presentation so you're showing is that what you were saying throughout these is, is showing them what is actually? I mean, what is queer death? What does that mean? You used the word while you were speaking, but what does it? What does it mean? I'm, I'm still defining it. That, okay. that might be really my entire dissertation is defining oh, wow. what. Like, I think of it as a as a as a, in a cultural context that these structures of heteronormativity are 
are keeping queer culture in such a state that that, that is a, a social death. Mm-hmm. I think of it in terms of a social death. Is, are we a queer culture if we don't even think we're a, a culture? And if we don't think we're a culture, do we not think we're a culture because of those heteronormative structures mm-hmm. oppressing? Yeah, because, oh, sorry. No, go for it. I was just thinking that oftentimes a queer history has been written out of just how we discuss and we look back, and, and particularly even in art history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that is uh, written out in artists' lives because it makes them less like commercially you know, viable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, t- uh, talking about your emptiness mm-hmm. feeling, because the woman feels that she has lost a part of herself, mm-hmm. especially in cases of miscarriage, because the baby who is not still born is still the part of herself, and this is not a, a separate individual. So that gives the feeling of losing a part and an emptiness that's inside. No one can even realize that. I have a, a friend of mine that had a, a miscarriage not too long ago, and she, she told me about it only long after. Um, and, and I think that this idea of not speaking about babies, you know, I think it's, you see the statistics about how many, how many women go through miscarriages and how in, in it's, it's, I don't want to use the word normal, but it's, it's more common than I think what an individual going through it realizes. Mm-hmm. But because of the veil of silence and of secrecy, um, you know, it's, it's bizarre when, I'd like, I don't know what I'm actually trying to say here, but just that, that I know several people that have gone through miscarriages, and those are only the people that have spoken up in one form or shape, mm-hmm. and guaranteed there are twice as many. Um, and to go through that alone is really, I imagine, any death alone, I think, would be really hard. Because I think the statistic um, in the UK, for example, is a third of women mm. have a miscarriage, which yes. is a wow. tremendous amount. And it is still something that people don't speak about um, because they often, you know, I think as you said, it always falls back on the mother, the woman, mm. to, and it, they feel responsible and as if they mm. caused it. But sometimes it is a biological reaction that unfortunately is, is normal. Yeah. It's the same thing with, with sexual violence, though, or, or you, you start to speak about these things. You broach what are uncomfortable conversations, and you start to realize how, what, you start to see the structure. You start to see the, the cord that is suspending the skeleton, right? You can see the chain. You start to see the chain when you start to talk about it a little bit more, which is, I think, really... Uh, incredible. So thank you all for making death a little bit more visible in this panel today and for, for opening up uh, conversations of awkwardness, which I think are, are good conversations to have. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I hope you enjoy a cup of coffee before the next session. Cheers, guys. That's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.